Well, good morning, friends. I want to welcome those who are here at our 930 service, also those who are attending the cafe service upstairs. Uh, If we have not met, my name is David. I serve as a senior pastor here, and if you are a first-time guest with us, welcome. Uh, Glad that you're here. Hope uh, worship blesses you uh, today. Uh, This is the third message of this series, Rooted. Uh, We're looking at where we are rooted as a family of faith. Uh, looking at the 18th century movement uh, that gave rise to Methodism. And we are doing this at, uh, specifically at a time uh, when we know delegates are preparing to gather from around the world uh, for what we call General Conference. Uh, the main legislative body of the United Methodist Church It's happening again at the end of the month. I've done three town hall events thus far. Uh, for anyone who wants to be more well-informed about the work of General Conference or to ask any questions that you may have, uh, the last one is today at 3 p.m. in the chapel, and so if you're interested in coming to that, I uh, want you to be aware of that. 3 p.m. chapel space, would love to, uh, to see you there. Again, we've looked at the aspects of the movement led by John Wesley that gave rise, gave birth uh, to the Methodist movement. Uh, uh, I've said before, my goal is not to bore you with history, um, but rather the reason for this series uh, is this idea that we believe that history is what shapes our identity and it's our identity that defines our future trajectory. And so in understanding better the history uh, of our heritage, we hope to sharpen our understanding of what is distinctive about our life together, what uh, our identity is, uh, and uh, with the understanding that an increased understanding of identity helps us better know what our future trajectory needs to be. Uh, We've talked about that uh, Wesley was someone who believed that the Christian life was a calling to a holy life. And over the course of his life, Wesley came to understand holiness in, in two aspects. He talked about holiness of heart and holiness of life. Holiness of heart is about your inward disposition towards God. And holiness of life is about the outward expression of that relationship in the way that you serve and bless the world around you. Uh, So again, it's how we love God and it's how we love others. And if you want to think about what the aim of holiness is, what the goal uh, of pursuing a holy life is all about, uh, Wesley would describe it in this way. He would talk about overcoming one's own self-preoccupation that blinds us to two things, our need of God and our neighbor's plight. Again, holiness is about overcoming our self-preoccupation that blinds us to our need for God and the plight of our neighbor. Wesley not only believed that the Christian life was a calling to a holy life, last week we talked about that, uh, that he believed that holiness must be pursued that holiness was, was to become the pursuit of the life that is surrendered to Christ. It must become our singular aim of growing in holiness. Again, holiness of heart and holiness of life. And there was a particular method that Wesley employed to, to enable people to pursue this kind of life. That's where the term Methodist came from. Gathering them in groups and in worship. Uh, uh, seeking to transform the habitual aspects of their everyday life as they grew in holiness, holiness of heart 
and holiness of life. So if you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 John chapter 3, not the Gospel of John, the letter of John. This is near the end of the Bible. If you're using one of the blue Bibles that we have provided for you, you will find that on page 1901. I want to encourage you to find that. I'll read to you a few verses from chapter 3, and then I'm going to read you a few verses from chapter 4 as well in just a minute. Uh, But as you find that, I want to ask you a question. Uh, Not only those here at 930, but also uh, in the cafe. The question is, do you know the song, Head, Shoulders, Knees, and Toes? Do you know that song? If you know that song, would you raise your hand? I want to look here at, at 930. Okay, there's a lot of hands raised here at 930. I don't believe you. Okay, so here's what I want everyone to do. This includes those at the cafe. I want you to stand up. Okay? Stand up, because I thought to myself, you know, I could look foolish, but why not all of us together look foolish together? So everyone's standing, all right? Okay, we're going to sing head, shoulders, knees, and toes together. And since we're not toddlers anymore, we're just going to point at our knees and our toes, okay? All right, here we go. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. You probably forgot this part. Eyes and ears and mouth and nose. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees, and toes. Good, good. give yourselves a hand. Yes, but don't sit down. Don't sit down. Stand up, stand up. Because there's a reason that we did that. And the reason that we did that is I want to give you new words to the song. Okay, so these are the, these are the words that we're going to sing now. Head, heart, hands, and feet, okay? And forget that eyes and ears stuff, okay? All right? And just so you know, my first job in ministry was I was a worship leader. So you're in good hands, all right? So here we go. Head, heart, hands, feet. Ready? Head, heart, hands, and feet, hands, and feet. Head, heart, hands, and feet, hands, and feet. Head and heart and hands and feet. Head, heart, hands and feet, hands and feet. Now you may be seated. Good job. All right, now that that song is stuck in your head, listen to these words from 1 John chapter 3. Uh, Beginning in verse 16, he writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. And then chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
John Wesley was a man of many skills, but he was also a brilliant man. For boarding school, he attended the prestigious Charterhouse School in London, uh, ended up at Christ uh, College in, I'm sorry, King's College at Oxford. And after finishing there, he was elected as a fellow at Lincoln College. Uh, that's a professor in today's terms. Uh, and he was given that task at the age of 21. It was around that same time that his brother Charles ended up at Oxford. And soon after, John and Charles, along with a few other friends, started a group. They met together three or four times a day. And the purpose of the group, uh, what their focus was, was they read uh, together the Christian classics. The writings of the early church fathers, beginning in the second century, they read those and they discussed them together. Again, meeting three or four times a week. Their peers mocked them for this. They, they thought they uh, were a little over the top in their religious conviction. They referred to them as enthusiasts. They called them Bible thumpers. And it was their peers that gave them the name the Holy Club. Again, as a way of mocking them. And, and to be honest, if any one of us would have been among their peers, we probably would have made fun of them as well. Uh, the, the word nerd, I'm not sure that was used at the time, but we would have used that in response to them. I mean, none of us would have been really stimulated by the overly academic and intellectual conversations that they engaged in on a regular basis, again, three to four times a week. But this group of men, the, the focus of their group changed when one of their members named William Morgan invited everyone else in the group to join him in something that he had been doing every week for quite some time. He invited them to visit the castle prison with him and to minister to the inmates there. Now here's what's worth noting. John Wesley was initially skeptical about this invitation. Because at that time, Wesley thought that that was really outside the focus of what this group was really all about. He was more interested in getting together, uh, reading some, uh, some writings from the early church fathers and discussing them. He wasn't quite sure visiting the prison had anything to do with that. In other words... Wesley's obsession with holiness of heart in his early years blinded him to this understanding of holiness of life. But he said yes. And he went with William and others to the castle prison. And it was that day that Wesley experienced what we casually sometimes refer to as a change of heart. And he made a commitment to William that day. He told him that every week he would be joining him to come back and to visit the prison. Now, if you visit Oxford today, you can go see the castle prison. But it's not a prison anymore. It's been renovated into a luxury hotel <laughs> that you can stay in and leave whenever you want. Uh, over the course uh, of time, uh, by Morgan's invitation, Wesley and the others became engaged in many other acts of service and, uh, and charity to others. They became involved in visiting the elderly, uh, returning to the prison, and it was uh, their engagement with the poor, the imprisoned and the elderly, that became a regular part of their activities that they shared together. 
Here again what 1 John says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Again, Wesley was a brilliant man. He was a scholar. He became a professor at the age of 21. These are words that he had read before. He knew them well. But it was his response to this invitation. It was his personal engagement with the poor that changed Wesley's understanding of the Christian life. And as a result of his personal change, that change dramatically impacted the direction of what Methodism would one day become. Now, whenever anyone uh, is on the brink of making a commitment to our church family, uh, we ask them to come to something called Starting Point. Our next one's coming up March 3rd, if that's where you are in your life. Uh, We do those several times uh, a year. And the reason that we do them is because we believe that commitments are a big deal. And that when you are making a commitment in your life, whatever that commitment might be, you should know what you are committing to. If you're going to buy a car, you should read the fine print. If you're going to get married, you should spend some time thinking about that. If you're going to make a commitment to a local church, you should know exactly what that local church is going to ask of you. What does it mean? to be committed, to be a member of that church. And so we, in a brief time, I share with them some things that they already know. I talk about our mission that they've heard many times before often, making disciples of Jesus Christ who love God, love others, and serve the world. And we talk about that as what we do, but also how we do what we do. We are about the what of our mission is making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what everything in the life of our church is all about. We want to invite people into that relationship and to help them grow in that relationship how do you do that how do you start how do you grow well that's this that's the rest of our mission we believe it happens through loving God loving others serving the world growing constantly in each of those expressions of our lives and then we talk about five core values we begin by saying we believe that everyone has a next step no one gets to show up on the weekend and say I'm a finished product if anyone has any questions I'm available here for you no one gets to do that because we all have a next step and so we want to constantly be encouraging and affirming each other in the pursuit of whatever that next step might be in your life of how God would call you to to pursue holiness in your life, holiness of heart and holiness of life. And and then we talk about the idea that we believe shared lives lead to changed lives, that that, that beyond the experience of gathering and worship, we want to encourage everyone in our church to be a part of a group of people who are sharing life together in a very intentional way. And that it's in the sharing of life that we really experience a change in life. And I don't know if you've noticed this, if you've been here the last two weeks of the series, but the first two weeks were about those first two values. This third week is about the third value that that we share uh, each time. And it's the value that expresses head and heart and hands and feet. This is how we say it. We believe that serving Jesus means serving others. 
And some of you have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Whenever someone is uh, considering making a commitment to our church, here's what I say. If you don't believe this, don't join this church. Just don't do it. Everyone is welcome here, but you will not be happy here. We will annoy you. Because we will talk about this over and over again because this is so much a part of the DNA, the life of this church. We believe that serving Jesus means serving others. So if that's not you, if that's not your heart, if that's not how you see the life of faith, we love you, God bless you, but you won't be happy here. Because this is who we are and this is so much of what our life together is all about. And this idea is what came to define so much of Wesley's life, what his life was about. Wesley, throughout his life, continued to engage in prison ministry and visiting those incarcerated and and working for reform in in the prison system there in England. Uh, Wesley is noted for starting the first free pharmacy in London because he looked around and he saw so many who were suffering, who were in need uh, of medicines to, to deal with the chronic pain that they were experiencing in their life, but also to experience the healing that others uh, had available to them because of the medicines that they could afford. And the way that Wesley did that, the way that he funded that, that pharmacy is he went door to door to door and he begged for the resources to make that possible to help the suffering who were living there in London. Wesley would eventually join his friend George Whitfield in leaving the comfort of the pulpit in the Anglican church to go out in the fields and preach, which to us doesn't sound that crazy, but in the 18th century was insane. <laughs> Wesley said after the first time he did it, he, he said, I thought I, I couldn't help but think that this, what I was about to do was a sin <laughs> to leave the sacred space of the Anglican church to go out in the fields but out there he met people he'd never met before so many who didn't feel welcome in the church of England at the time under his ministry alcoholics and gamblers experienced a transformation in their life a transformation that actually led to additional problems that we'll look at next week but Wesley's life was marked by this idea of holiness of heart of holiness of life he became obsessed with reaching out and doing whatever he could to, uh, to help uh, with the suffering that he saw all around him throughout his life. And part of what's notable about that is the way in which Wesley's life inspired the lives of others to follow his example. One of those was a man named William Booth who in the 19th century, mid-19th century, he, he began working in his early years as a pawnbroker. And that's exactly what you would think it was. Uh, he, was he ran a pawn shop. And as, as is often the case uh, in our time, it was also the case in that time, that that trade was one that often took advantage of the poor and the suffering who found themselves desperate for the resources to make it through the next day, the next week, the next month. But then Booth became a Christian through the work of the Methodists, and eventually he became a Methodist preacher, leaving the old trade behind. He, he did that work for over a decade until he felt God calling him to do something different. 
He started an organization, and the name that he came up with for this organization was the Salvation Army. And the focus from the very beginning, the focus that Booth brought to that organization was he wanted to reach and bless the same people who he had taken advantage of in the early years of his life. In 1759, William Wilberforce was born. In 1784, he became a member of parliament at the age of 25. And a year later, in 1775, he became a Christian through the movement of Methodism. Two years later, in 1877, he took up one of the causes that Methodists had been working for already for many years, the cause of the Uh, abolishing the slave trade in England. On February 24th, 1791, just six days before he died, at the age of 87, John Wesley wrote the final letter of his life. And that final letter was a letter to William Wilberforce. Here's what he said. Unless the divine power has raised you up to be as Athanasius Contramundum. Again, he was a, he was a nerd. Uh, that means Athanasius arrayed against the world. I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out. By the opposition of men and devils. But if God before you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Reading this morning a tract wrote by a poor African, I was particularly struck by that circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress, it being a law in our colonies that the oath of a black against a white goes for nothing. What villainy is this? That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. The words of Wesley would prove to be prophetic. In the years to come, the opposition to Wilberforce in this cause would only continue to grow. At that time, Wilberforce had been working for five years towards this goal of ending the slave trade. But it would be another 15 years in 1807 until that work was done. 20 years. For 20 years, Wilberforce gave himself to this singular aim. It took him 20 years to see that vision become a reality. And over the course of the 15 years that followed, I can't help but wonder how many times Wilberforce would have opened again this 
letter. Knowing that it was the last that Wesley would ever write, and hearing again the words of encouragement, go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, that he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and in all things. That is the prayer of your affectionate servant, John Wesley. How much those words must have meant to him. What I say about you is true. When I tell people they shouldn't join this church if they don't believe in Serving Jesus means serving others. It's true about you. That's, that's who you are, and you live that out in many ways in your community and in our region and around the world. You do incredible things as a family of faith. Over the course of more than a decade, you've given away more than a million dollars to bless orphans all around the world. And all around the world today, I've met some of them. Those who in their former life had absolutely no hope are living a life today that they never imagined would ever be possible for them. They did that because you gave. They received that gift because you sacrificed to make that possible. But the goal of this series is more than just to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, good job. I do want you to understand that that part of who you are, I want you to know that it's rooted in where we started, in in the heritage, the, the place from which our understanding of the faith was born. But this series is also meant to be a challenge to us. It's a it's a opportunity to understand in a better way our history, to gain clarity on who we are as we look to the future and we think about who we will be. And so it is appropriate that we would pause and challenge ourselves and ask, God, what more might we do? So I want to share with you some questions that I'm going to be asking. And I want to invite you to ask them, consider them, and be challenged by them as well. What does my city need from me? Whether your city be Mansfield or Midlothian or Alvarado or Arlington, wherever, wherever you call home, what, is, what does your city need from you? What are the needs in your city? Where are the places of hurt and suffering that we may not know about now or we may turn an, away from? right now what are the needs in 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 our city in your city uh, that what do they need from the church what do they need from us in our life together what does your neighborhood need as someone who has said yes to Jesus if that's your life if you've surrendered your life to him what do your neighbors need from you what, what, what's, what's the gift? What's, what does your presence mean on your block, in your neighborhood? What does your neighborhood need from the church? What does your family need? 
What does your child's school need? What, what does the elementary school or middle school or intermediate school or high school that you pass by on a regular basis, what do they need from you? What do they need from us? What do the poor, what do the suffering, what, what do those who, who find themselves disenfranchised, what, are, what do they need from you? And what do they need from me? And what do they need from the church? And though your church may be doing lots of things to, to, to meet needs of those around us, when's the last time you personally engaged with that? When's the last time you went to Feed by Grace and helped share a meal with, with the homeless? When's the last time you were personally engaged in, in that work and experienced the opportunity to, 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 to have a, a change in your life? What does our world, what do the hurting need from us? They need people who see faith as head, heart, hands, and feet. Let's pray together. Loving God, we continue to pray as we have in weeks leading up to this. We pray that you would wake us up. We pray that you would stir us from any slumber. We pray, Lord, that in understanding our history, you would sharpen our sense of identity. That we, Lord, might know the unique blessing and service that we might render in the world in which we live, in the city that we call home, in the neighborhood in which we live, and in the families that you have given to us. We pray, Lord, that you would wake us up to this pursuit of holiness, a holiness of heart and a holiness of life, recognizing that there are things that are the body that is the church can do together, but there are things that only we ourselves can do. There are places that only each of us individually have the opportunity to go. And so send us, dear Lord. Send us into your world to be those whose inward disposition leads to a beautiful outward expression of this life of faith. These things we pray today in the name of Jesus. Amen.